You're listening to Flux Pod. My name is Matthew Rapacha, but you're actually listening to Dan Pilled Four. I am here with Jesse Hawkins. Say hello, Jesse. Hi, guys. Jesse. Hello, every- Let me say that again. Hello, everybody. <laughs> I don't want to gender this thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> guys, gals, and non binary pals, as the street fight people put it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, we're going to do uh, the fourth Dan Pilled. Uh, the last episode, the, the last episode ran on your podcast, so now I'm hosting. We go back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so here we go. We're gonna. Uh, so the, the the agenda for this one is uh, we're gonna talk a bit about the new Steely Dan live record that just came out. You know, the Steely Dan in the news, and then uh, we have uh, a selection of uh, eight songs that we're gonna talk about. One from each of the uh, the seven major canonical Steely Dan albums. Yeah, this one is uh, where we finally exhaust our supply on a couple of records. Yeah, we'll go back to them. I mean, we're, there's, I mean we kind of talked a little bit about one of them before, but it's my favorite, so I don't care if we do it again. No. <laughs> so, okay, uh, did you get the new uh, the new live records that just came out? I haven't got them yet in my hands, but I've listened to them. Thank goodness well, yeah, for Spotify. So, yeah, I, I actually do have the CDs right here. Hmm uh the, not a, you know it's not the greatest packaging in the world let's be honest no uh, you know pristine uh digital uh disc quality these are the times where i remind myself that like donald fagan is 73 years old and so you know the the uh the cover art for these two live records is pretty unremarkable <laughs> but maybe it's made for uh aging boomers to be well, able to read from, here's you know? a funny thing that you it's funny that you print. mentioned that because uh, the, the the young man in Steely Dan, uh, Connor Kennedy, plays guitar. He basically is uh, filling Walter's shoes. Uh, and he's like probably like 30. He's a, he's a young man. And he is a really good follow on Instagram. Uh, he's been documenting, you know, that Steely Dan's on the road right now. He puts up set lists. He puts up uh, fun things like art he makes but he put up the uh, you know the art that he had in mind for the northeast corridor uh record the 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 steely dan one the other one is the nightfly live and it's definitely a lot better but uh but uh, donald wasn't into it i think donald i mean i i get the the idea of like let's just have a picture of the band on on, on stage you know Mm mm-hmm this, this is what you're listening to. And I don't know. I look at this, this photo that's on the cover and it's like, okay, yeah, yeah. It's the warm feeling of, oh yes, that's what they look like. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's uh it's a, it, the, the thing with this record is that as a person, I've, I've seen Stylian a bunch of times and you, you have not at all, right? Not yet. I, I'm, not yet. I'm, I'm, I've got my fingers crossed that they hit Canada in 2022 and that I get to go see them. Yeah. Or you may have to cross the border. Willing to do that if they uh, ever commit to that uh, that Beacon Theater uh, session. Yeah, let's talk later. Maybe maybe you should come down for the the Jones Beach show. Um, oh, is there is there one? Uh, when is it? That's in the, in the summer somewhere, okay. and All that's right. with uh, Steve Winwood. Well, there it is. I'll have to work, move heaven and earth to get down there for that. Yeah. But um, anyway, <laughs> uh, you know, so I have like quibbles with like the track listing. There's like a because they had released the live record in uh, 1995 of the mm-hmm. that reunion tour, the first big reunion tour. 
And, you know, they repeat some songs from that. And I, and I get why you'd repeat a few of them. But like Bodhisattva is like the third released ver- live version of the song. So it was a little bit like, well, you know, what about my old school? You play that like virtually every show. Why didn't you put, you know, I, I kind of get the the feeling that they're, they're saving some songs so they could do another live record in the, in the in the years to come. Mm-hmm. And they just have a bunch of songs like because there's some there's some big ones like, you know, my old school is like a, a total staple of the show. Time out of mind is a staple of the show. Uh, Black Friday, Dirty Work. There's a bunch of songs that are, you know, major parts of the show that just aren't documented here. But, you know, getting over that hump, a very good live record, just really top quality recordings. Uh, and you it's just I think more than anything, I wanted these to exist to have a document of how some of the the players who are in the live version of Steely Dan uh, to have like you know their their takes on things immortalized, and you know m- most obviously uh, Keith Carlock, the drummer, who's just really probably the the single best drummer I've ever seen play. Um, but also you know Connor Kennedy and uh, 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 what's his name uh, John Harrington, who's the band leader. He's the lead guitar player. Like the, these are really uh, top notch players, and to kind of hear, you know, their little spins on things, and when you know, in the, the solos, they pointedly don't play them exactly like the original ones. They, you know, they put their own personality into them. So there is uh, a bit of life to this. That's it's not just like you know, slavish, uh, you know, reworks of the of the original material. Yeah, like Steely Dan, uh, the the studio perfectionists uh, don't particularly offer up on this live album like perfection. It seems to be a, a more organic live uh, experience of like you know seeing a band actually like doing these songs uh, you know for an audience. There's a different energy to it. It's not uh, going to be note perfect. Yeah, but it's going to be pretty close because they're working with absolute killer players. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's uh yeah there 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 is a, a level of accuracy but it's also um you know that the arrangements are different they're you know they're kind of accommodating a, a different feel you know um and yeah. also like there's there's a few of these songs that were on the previous live record uh alive in america but had like pretty different arrangements like reeling in the years and uh, uh kid charlemagne have like very different arrangements in, in the mm-hmm. 90s Mm-hmm. Like like a lot of like much like much, much more keyboard on them. This one has uh, one of my favorites. Every any major dude will tell you. I was very happy to hear a sort of contemporary version of that. From oh this yeah, that, and and that's a you know until like that last tour was a song that was very seldom played, and I I kind of get the sense that uh, that was actually probably the influence of uh, Connor Kennedy being the band because that's the song mm-hmm. that he was leading.
it's interesting because there's a couple songs on this that are, are were not frequently played. Um, like things I miss the most, which is from uh, Everything Must Go, is from a, a show that I actually saw uh, at the Beacon Theater in New York City. Uh, the most recent Steely Dan show I saw was that one. Hmm. And that's probably my favorite Steely Dan show I've ever seen, honestly. But that was my least favorite part of the show is things I missed the most. It's <laughs> the only time they, they played that in the, for a while. Um, yeah. And it, it does kind of like drive me crazy that that show had a very special thing happen where they had uh, Jenny Lewis come out and sing Dirty Work. And like yeah. Jenny Lewis saying Dirty Work would be something that would you know certainly move a few extra copies, get a few more streams going. Mm hmm. But uh, I guess that was not meant to be. But I'm glad I got to see that. But it's like that. That's I mean, that's the more commercially minded thing to include on a thing like this. I was thinking that this is the first time we've mentioned a song from Everything Must Go. <laughs> and it's in the context of this live album. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it's, it's a good song and it's a good performance. But it's just like, you know, it, it does feel like, oh, you know, we should do one of the songs from the, the 2000s. We should we should you know acknowledge that those songs exist here. Yeah, I read an interview with Fagan that was in Variety as these live albums were coming out, and they did ask him about the topic. Uh, you know, why are you still out there touring as Steely Dan with Walter gone? And I'll read you uh, his answer. He said, "Well, as a writing entity, I couldn't presume. Uh, you know, I'm only fifty percent of Steely Dan." I would never do that. In fact, I wanted to go out as Donald Fagan and the Steely Dan Band or something more accurate. But Live Nation said, you know what? We're not going to book it if you could do that. You have to call it Steely Dan. And I said, OK, whatever. Yeah. Well, I mean, also just like my understanding of, of their view of things is, I mean, these are people who like elected to not play on their own records, especially Walter. Mm -hmm. like Walter, like, like seem to actively prefer to get someone better to play the parts he wrote. Um, and, you know, that's crazy because like Walter Becker is a, a really supremely talented guitarist and bass player. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a band that, you know, out of all the major bands you could ever think of would be one where like, you know, it's perfectly fine if we're not here. Yeah. Um, I was, although, when I was although listening, I, oh. I, I'm sorry, I, but I do feel like it's, it, you can't really replace uh Donald's voice. That's that's the tricky thing. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was listening to it, I wasn't listening for the absence of Walter Becker particularly because, um, you know, like he didn't have a sort of vocal presence very often on in the band. And, you know, though he was a terrific guitar player. He used to sing Daddy Don't Live in the, uh, that New York City no more. Oh, nice. Like pretty frequently. And he, he would sing Gaucho from time to time as well. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he and and uh, I watched a couple of live performances where he told these really funny, like five minute stories during a 19. Yes. Like they, they had the dump that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's that was actually one of the funnier things is like uh, and you can kind of hear on this record uh, that Donald doesn't really know how to ad lib well on that part. And he just yeah. kind of like gets it over with as quickly as he can. Um, yeah. I think the version of Hey 19 on this is is especially good. Yes, it's very good. But I noticed that, yeah, Fagan started to do the, the riffing for a couple of minutes and then just bailed out. That's right. One thing I want you to remember as we go through the night is that uh, you better skate a little lower now. You know what I'm trying to say? I'm trying to tell you something. 
yeah, uh, this, to getting into some of the performances on this, like what, I, I know you're a huge glamour profession guy. I feel like that's a, that's a yeah. highlight of this you, as well. You, you can't go wrong with glamour profession. Um, yeah, it was lovely to hear. I I also want to say something. I really appreciated the uh, the vague frailty of Fagan's voice. Like he's really given her, but you can also tell that he's like you know seventy three. Yeah, and a guy who's never really had like a, like a really good voice, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think he sings like as well as you possibly can with the voice that he has. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, the thing that I listen to like all the time is the version of Black Cow on this the, at the top yes. of the, the recording. Uh, it's just become like one of the default things I listen to. It, you know, it kind of replacing the studio Black Cow as a default thing I listen to. I but, uh, uh, I really like the uh, Kid Charlemagne uh, rendition on this record too. Yeah, ah, steely done. Um, yeah, I think I think another thing that's very useful about this, and I was kind of getting at this before, is like hearing uh, Keith Carlock and his interpretation of some of these songs, and you know, I think the thing that's m- kind of miraculous about him is that he just has this extraordinary range as a player. He can do anything that a Steely Dan could ask for. And I think mm-hmm. even like a lot of the guys that they have as you know studio drummers might not have been able to pull off what he can pull off quite casually. Um, yeah. And yeah. I think that really comes through on Asia. And we, we really want to talk about Asia to begin with. But I feel like this live version really sets it up because you get to hear... Uh, the uh, you get to hear the Keith Carlock version now, and then you know in the past Steve Gadd on drums, Mister One Take, <laughs> one of the most complicated uh, drum parts that you could really ask for, and he nails it in one take. And, you know, and then he's also uh, kind of he, he's got the he's, kinda, he's up against like Wayne Shorter, although the Wayne Shorter uh, solo. All of that was added after he had finished the drums. So I remember reading yeah. that, you know, he was surprised when he heard it. It's like, oh, wow, you got Wayne Shorter with this? Yeah. But uh, it, tell, tell me a bit about Asia. Like, what, what your feelings about the song Asia? Well, Asia is the longest cut in their discography um, on an album that's hailed for its perfection. This is probably the most meticulous track on the record. And unlike a lot of Steely Dan's music, this is constructed kind of like a suite, you know, as opposed to a pop song or a jazz number. And I guess that uh, construction accounts for its length. Um, It has a very long um, stretch of um, solos. Yeah, as I said, like that Wayne Shorter solo is like really the there's there's a few of them. There's there's Mm. there's it's a it's a song that really has a lot of colors in it. Yeah, uh, Shorter's tenor sax solo, um, it's two takes that were pieced together. So they use the beginning of, of one and the end of another. You can hear sort of a, a sort of a instrumental breakdown where they sort of busted it into pieces. And Steve Gadds, uh, indeed, like he, he played live with the band in the studio and required no editing to his take. Um, it's just amazing that such a masterclass in uh, percussion is a one take wonder. Yeah, I think it really speaks to Gad, though. <laughs> but you know, I, I remember, um, I can't remember what this was from, but I remember like hearing Keith Carlock talk about like like the work he had to put into, you know, mastering Asia. And Asia is a song that's like really like, 
it's, it's a real mainstay of their show. It's like virtually all shows include Asia, usually towards the start of the show. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's 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 kind of a, a wild thing to imagine having to learn. It's just, it's very demanding. Um, and has this, not just in terms of just having like a lot of uh, interesting time things, things like that, but it's a song that requires like both power and delicacy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what you, certainly what you get with that Gad thing, because there's just this real like uh, soft fluidity to how he plays. And, and you know, I, we're going to talk about this this genre a little bit on this episode is that Asia is, you could, I guess, classify it as jazz fusion. Yeah, it, it's probably the most jazz fusion song they have. Up on the hill I have a theory about Asia that it's the song that really cemented in a lot of the haters' minds uh, what they hated about Steely Dan. That, you know, this was the second track on this album and it was like, you know, uh, it was built for like audio files to best appreciate. This song is particularly good to listen to on headphones. And uh, at the same time, it's this fastidious, uh, ornate work that is very pretentious and uh, has, you know, uh, cryptic lyrics and uh, crazy tenor sax solo by Wayne Shorter. Like it has all these sort of bona fides that, that distinguish uh, Steely Dan from their contemporaries, like Fleetwood Mac. Like what Fleetwood Mac wouldn't do a, no. you know, eight minute jazz odyssey. I mean, that said, I feel like it's a song that's very much of its time. Uh, the record came out in 77. They're, you know, I guess they made it probably a bit in 76. Um, but it's a song that's kind of like merging a lot of what was happening in jazz, the jazz fusion stuff. It's it's kind of working through uh, like these prog elements and not necessarily prog as in prog rock, but kind of like the elements of prog that are kind of like neoclassical. Mm-hmm. And then it also has like these uh, uh, orientalist things going on in it. Yeah. And I mean, that's certainly like the, the, the subject of the lyrics. Um so wait, do angular banjos sound good to you? <laughs> Have I found myself under a banyan tree uh, yeah. up at the dude ranch? Above... <laughs> yeah, um, a dude ranch above the sea. So you know, good. When, when re- all your dime dancing is through, I run to you. So it's it's kind of like romantic, but also totally inscrutable. Mm-hmm. And like, there's another line like the double helix in the sky tonight. Yes. Yeah, it's so evocative, but you know, I, I think you were saying something about um, you, you, before we recorded this, you were telling me something about um, 
what what the Chinese music sounds good to me line was really talking about. Well, I read a very thought provoking analysis of the meaning of the song. I mean, one funny thing about Steely Dan is that uh, they write these songs that are almost made to be interpreted and poured over by the, you know, the Danologists to sort of try and, and analyze the meaning of these songs. And I read a compelling uh, argument that this song is about Charlie Parker, their hero. Um, Charlie Parker uh, wound up in a mental hospital and so did Bud Powell at the time. They, they were these, you know, great bebop jazz musicians who had raging heroin problems. And uh, the dude ranch above the sea up on the hill is the convalescence home. And in fact, uh, Charlie Parker wrote a song uh, after he got out of this uh, institution that he was in uh, that was that was uh, about his sort of relaxing time there. I, I'm blanking on the title of the song right now, but, you know, it was his sort of post-convalescent uh, song that he wrote. So uh, this sort of changes the meaning of the Chinese music uh, reference. Louis Armstrong called bebop Chinese music. That was, you know, his dismissive term for music made for other musicians as opposed to music like jazz music made for jazz musicians to appreciate as opposed to the public. Right. They're just where you're just grooving or dancing or just, you know, enjoying a pretty melody. Yeah. But this is, you know, Louis Armstrong was the great, uh, you know, jazz musician accepted by white America. And so, you know, a, a personality like him might've felt threatened by, the idea of more experimental jazz music, you know, crowding his legacy out. So he said that it was music that, you know, like the uh, Salieri line, too many notes, you know, like just this dismissive uh, term, but it, but he referred to it as Chinese music. Yeah, you know, yeah, Chinese music, they, they enjoy it. The angular banjos sound good to them. But Steely Dan loves this stuff, right? And yeah. like, and uh it's also, funny, like, you know, it's like we the songs that we chose, we kind of have these songs that kind of echo each other. And this is going to this this whole theme of like they're essentially writing about jazz will come up on the song we'll get to in a little bit. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but it's also, just funny that the songs that we chose for today just happen to have these recurrent themes. The other interesting thing is that the banyan tree, which also features in the song, along with the Chinese music, uh, there's a relationship in in Buddhist culture between the banyan tree and enlightenment. They say that the Buddha achieved his holy enlightened state after sitting under a banyan tree for seven days and seven nights, fighting these battles in his mind and achieving this great awakening. Wow. And I, I definitely see that in the connection of, you know, we were saying about Parker and being, yeah. And, at the, and that sort of changes the meaning of the crazy, uh, midsection of the song with that very very fiery uh, tenor sax solo by Wayne Shorter which sounds very chaotic
as kind of like the weather coming through. Yeah, but I always think of that sax solo as being much longer than it is. It's actually only a minute. But um, continuing on telling you a little bit about banyan trees, that um, they are uh, found in numerous uh, numbers in Hawaii. They were imported there from India in the 1870s. And Hawaii is where Walter Becker relocated post-Steely Dan. I wonder if this song is about uh, struggling with drug problems. Yeah, you know, when you put it through, that all it all kind of clicks together like that. You know, it's kind of, uh, it's almost like the past, present, and future of, of Walter. And I, I think this one does seem like it's probably mo- a little more Walter than it's Donald. Mm-hmm. Uh just the the, the the lyrical concerns seem very Walter. Um, well, and that's one Dan- of those things. That's one of those things where, you know, because they wrote all the lyrics together, you know, there is a, a thing of like, okay, this one seems, and we also just have like the stuff they wrote by themselves as, as a kind of a indication of what their personal interests were. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this one definitely seems a bit more Walter to me. And it's like the, and the kind of the issues that, he was dealing with even at that time, but certainly much worse in the years to come. For sure. And, you know, to, to sort of wrap up this sort of this uh, Danologist sort of analysis of this song is that uh, he also pointed out that dime dancing is a, is a colloquial term for drug abuse. Oh, wow. Asia, when all my dime dancing is through, I run to you, which means Asia is jazz. And that jazz is the peaceful place, uh, you know, where you're no longer troubled, where you're under the banyan tree and listening to the Chinese music that sets you free. Ah, Jesse, I think I think you've convinced me. I think this is how I'm going to look at Asia for the rest of my life. (laughs) And probably anyone that does a very convincing uh, case. I know. I was like, oh, my God, I think this has been unlocked for me uh, because uh, that is a fairly good description if banyan trees are everywhere in hawaii and Walter becker after he bottomed out moved to hawaii became an avocado rancher uh and started producing music i was i've been meaning to ask you for all these episodes matthew have you ever heard the album flaunt the imperfection by china crisis no i haven't actually china crisis was this uk band um that walter becker was interested in uh they they put out a an album in 1982 i'm blanking on the name right now like working with fire and steel or something but um he really responded to them and he actually got in touch with this band china crisis and offered his services as their producer and they got along so well that for the album that becker produced called flaunt the imperfection uh he gets credit as a member of the band he's credited as their percussionist and synthesizer player wow and I recommend to you uh, and to any listeners, there's a wonderful single that China Crisis did in 1985 called Black Man Ray that is very Steely Danish. And Walter Becker uh, produced that single. quote from Marcus Miller, the jazz and R&B veteran, because, you know, Asia was vaguely controversial at the time because of the fusion between rock and jazz and Seely Dan being thought of as the, the rock band who were now heading deeply into jazz fusion territory. Um, but Marcus Miller said this, 
I would hear people react weirdly to Steely Dan and groups like that. As long as it feels good, what do you care if there's a lot of chords in there that you don't understand? But some people need to prove how down they are with how raw the music is. Like, Steely Dan is kind of a punk band in some respects, certainly in the subject matter and the and the gulf between the sound of what they were singing and, and the sound that they were producing against the dark material that they were singing about. Um, that's sort of a punk ethos, but nobody would in 1977 would have classified what Steely Dan was doing as punk because punk was uh, so uh, in your face and obvious in 1977. Yeah. It's funny to think about, like, I don't know if people like ordinary listeners hear a thing and be like, those chords are weird. That's a real musician thing to do. Oh, yeah. I think I think normal people like, you know, they might sense that something is up about the song, but they don't really have the vocabulary to be like, oh, man, <laughs> that progression is crazy. Well, yeah. But uh, anyway, Marcus Miller uh, dug what they were trying to do. I mean, you know, he didn't have the baggage that maybe other people did. So you know, let's move along. So I think we got we got some good Asia time in. We kind of put off Asia for a while, but I think I think we cracked Asia. <laughs> we solved Asia. Yes, we did it. Let, but now let's go back to the start. Let's talk about dirty work. Uh, this is one work. that you've been lobbying for, and it's obviously a, a, a one of the most popular songs they have. Um, it's not a huge favorite for me, honestly. But it, I mean, I like the song. But uh, I I, tr- I think that you love this one a bit more so I don't let you uh, lead the dance on this one times are hard you're afraid to pay the fee so you find yourself somebody who can do the job for free when you need a bit of love cause your man is out of town that's the time you get me running and you know Well, you know, I like Dirty Work. Dirty Work is not one of the favorites of Steely Dan. And and when they perform it live, uh, Fagan lets the girls sing it, right? But like, this was a song that was uh, uh, that was sung by David Palmer, their very brief uh, co-lead singer. I right, read... who's kind of foisted on them by the <laughs> label. And with this he... guy with like a very kind of thin, reedy voice. Yeah, and he sang only two songs on Can't Buy a Thrill, and I believe on the first tour that Steely Dan did, he was the lead singer, but he didn't actually do a lot of singing on the record. Yeah. Uh, I, I think like he was mainly doing that because like Donald was not thrilled with singing to begin with. I think at that point in time, he was a lot more nervous about it. Mm-hmm. So if you have a guy who's only there to sing, you may as well get your money's worth. I guess Dirty Work is sort of the normies favorite Steely Dan song, like because it, you know, got used on the American Hustle soundtrack and it it plays on classic rock radio. And it's uh, I think I, I mean, I think of the Sopranos. I think of like Tony Soprano singing, definitely. The song, you know, but it was uh, so what was going on was ABC Records had been very supportive of Steely Dan uh, and and 
they insisted that there be a couple of very obvious and straightforward songs on the record that would be played on the radio. And in fact, ABC was surprised when they started uh, sending Can't Buy a Thrill Around for radio programmers. And the radio programmers went crazy for Do It Again, which was a song that ABC figured was just, you know, at six and a half minutes or whatever, that would not get airplay. But that was the song that the radio uh, programmers responded to and not Dirty Work. Yeah. I mean, you get like three pretty major songs on that record because you also get Real One in the Years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, I can see why in, in the context of light FM, early 70s, you'd be like, oh, Dirty Work, that's the one. Mm-hmm. But I, I think, uh, you know, as we were kind of getting to the last episode, we talked about Do It Again. And like that one kind of has like this kind of nostalgic psychedelia to it. It was like, you know, it's it's a song that, uh, you know, kind of brings back some zombies vibes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like they're, they're, that probably went in its favor. I feel in the, it just kind of stood out. It has that great kind of kind of quasi Latin rhythm to it. Mm hmm. You know, I can see why like that would just make more sense, especially because you're talking about like you're entering into the height of FM radio where, you know, who cares, man? It's six minutes. Perfect. I can I can smoke a joint while it's on. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh, Yeah. But Dirty Works is a good like light FM kind of ballad. Um, It sounds great in the car. That's one reason I like it so much. It sounds so good when it's in the uh, playing on the radio and it pops up on a classic radio station. It sounds great. I think the thing that's uh, interesting to me about Dirty Work is really in the lyrics, the sentiment of that song uh, and the way that it it can kind of play a few different ways where you can take it quite literally as being kind of a capitalist thing of, of, you know, being underpaid and underappreciated of, you know, it's kind of getting led around. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think it's, it's really a song that's about a, it's a romantic relationship where, it's, you know, someone's kind of being cheapened. Mm-hmm. And I, but I like that it really can just go either way, depending on wh- where you happen to be in life. I thought it was a kiss off song that it was, uh, you know, somebody who's finished with uh, being with this person who doesn't appreciate them. That's what I always took from it. Yeah. I, I think that's like the real meaning, but I, I like that, you know, like the, the metaphors they are using can be taken entirely at face value if you want them to be. Yeah. So, you know, so this song was, a, a, is ultimately a sort of concession. It was Steely Dan, uh, all, maybe just saying, okay, let's give the, the label something because they let us, you know, do everything else that we did on this record. Having, you know, New York Recan songs and stuff. That, okay, fine. We'll we'll give you a top forty style song. Uh, yeah, you know, and and that they didn't do very much of that sort of concession to the label, and maybe that's one reason why they don't uh, think fondly about this. I have a funny quote from Walter Becker about this song. Um, he said that yeah. when th- there were artists that covered this song, and they were never very happy with any of the covers. The Pointer Sisters did a version of it. And Becker said that every cover that he'd heard made it sound like a worse idea than it was in the first place. Uh, so, and Becker said, even dirty work, which I think we didn't execute well, everyone else executes as least as badly as we did, which is inexcusable and usually worse. I haven't heard a good version of dirty work. There should be one. Hmm. <laughs> 
let, let's move along to a song from the next record that has a, a thing in common and that it's one of the songs that uh, when they perform live, the Danettes sing it. And that song is Razor Boy. Oh, man. From uh, Countdown to Ecstasy. You know that the coming is so close at hand. bizarre song yeah it is a jazz song that has the the vibes on it but it also is a country and western song with uh, jeff baxter playing the uh pedal steel yeah it is a deeply weird song um and a very quick one i think it's just under three minutes yeah, and right. It's it's a brief song, but you know, so, but you have Victor Feldman on vibes and marimba, and the, a major major get, especially this early in their career. They got Ray Brown, uh, major major jazz bass player, mm-hmm. uh, and he he's the guy holding it down on Razor Boy, and so you really have this song that's kind of like a few different genres kind of colliding together, mm-hmm. uh, in this kind of uh, fascinating way. It's 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 a, one of those songs where uh, it really I think sort of like Asia. It's like one of those things where they're combining things in a way that really only they would have the the capability to do so or the interest in doing so. Yeah, like it's it's got uh, a Latin rhythm to it and it's got vibes on it and then it's got pedal steel guitar, which is expertly played by Baxter. It's beautiful. Yeah, or it's almost like, I'm not really sure exactly. It's a little bossa nova. I think mm-hmm. that the vibes kind of emphasize a bossa nova ness. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but this song captivated me when I when uh, when I went into my sort of danaissance when I was in my 30s and I started really digging in to uh you know, listening to the records cover to cover. Um I I really really liked Razor Boy. I was like, what a what a beautiful and evocative song this is. This is another song about drugs though. I mean, you can analyze it any number of ways and they all add up to drugs and death. Yeah. I mean, I kind of think of it more as, I mean, drugs are definitely (laughs) kind of avoidably, but I really think of it as kind of being like the the razor boy is kind of a thug, basically. Yeah. You know, it it might be a drug dealer. It might be, uh, I I know some people, you know, interpret it as just like, it's just cocaine, like a razor, but I think that's really more of a late seventies thing. Mm -hmm. I, I, the, the cocaine doesn't really blow up till the mid seventies. And the song is from like 74, 73. So it's kind of on the edge. Maybe they're, you know, I wouldn't put it past them to be ahead of the curve, but yeah, I, I take the razor in this to be more of like a violent thing. Mm-hmm. I thought that the razor boy was your drug problem. 
the razor boy coming and taking your fancy things away. Yeah, that feels right. And I mean, I, I think the thing that's interesting about the song is that, you know, it's it's sung to a you. Uh, but I really I think it is a second person as opposed to a first or third. Yeah, it's it sounds like an interior monologue, like for somebody who's got problems. Um, also, uh, you'll remember that the sort of the classic uh, drawing of the Grim Reaper, he's holding this big staff with a giant razor blade on it. So maybe the yeah. razor boy is the grim reaper, or it could be simply that this guy slashes you in a razor with, with a, it could be simply that this guy slashes you with a razor <laughs> in the Pepe's rough lifestyle that you ear live in. Ear. <laughs> <laughs> the razor boy got him. Yeah. I, I think like razor boy is just a really evocative name. I mean, it, it, it also kind of has like, a, it sounds like a, like a psychotic superhero. You could, you know, like maybe that's an alternate name for Wolverine. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, it's it's, it's a it, yeah. To me, I, I always just kind of imagine kind of like a, a street tough. But to me, this song is about somebody who's living a, a, a drug fueled lifestyle that they're that is starting to uh, go over their heads and starting to they're starting to not be able to um, live up to the lifestyle that they're trying to hold down. I think of the uh, very evocative line about women in cages uh, that comes up in the second verse um he sings i guess only women in cages can play down the things they lose i don't think of that as a woman being in captivity i think of that as the dancing girls in cages you know over a sleazy club you know that yeah. the song is about this fascination with the nightlife so much of steely dan's music is about uh trying to function in these uh environments that are dangerous they, they love the nightlife they love the boogie yeah <laughs> Is that your radiator? <laughs> yeah, it's obnoxious. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I th I think Razor Boy is a beautiful song and a very, very chilling song, the, you know, about uh, will you still have a song to sing when the Razor Boy comes and takes your fancy things away? Yeah. Will you <sighs> still be singing it on that cold and windy day? Like, it just sounds like, uh, you know, the horrible fate of somebody who can no longer keep up. Let's move ahead to the the, the next record because I feel like th these two songs kind of go together more than I ever would have thought before. You know, just kind of thinking about them kind of side by side. But the song "Night by Night" from Pretzel Logic, mm -hmm. uh, a song that kind of uh, got back into me because I noticed that because uh, I mentioned before, like the they're like they're doing shows right now, and the one song they brought back that they hadn't been playing was uh, "Night by Night." Which is a really is one of the songs I, I've never seen that I would love to see, um, but Night by Night is, seems like a like a real no brainer to play live because it has that like it's it's all pocket it's mm -hmm. all pocket and groove it has like this really dramatic uh, uh, feeling to it, but it's another song that's really just about a low life. Mm -hmm. it's, it's it's like you know if you know if you go with the idea that the Razor Boy is the is per, this personification of this like low life. Uh, you know, maybe it's, that's the that's the part of you that's uh, about that's that's running rampant and it's going to destroy your life, take all your fancy things away. The, the the character in Night by Night is is just really that guy, and just kind of a it's 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 not really clear what he does. He seems like a grifter and a drifter and uh, just a, a criminal, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and he's just kind of making his way through things. But it's, it seems like he like similar to Razor Boy, a feeling of like, 
uh, wanting out, but realizing like you, you don't really have a lot of options to get out. So, you know, the, the, the bargain that you make is like, you know, you're doing this night by night, but eventually you're going to get out of it. us to glamour profession a few years later the same kind of story so many of the, the people who are supposedly ambitious in steely dan songs their ambition is about perpetuation of this of the situation like night by night uh, literally like the future is tomorrow for these guys as opposed to an actual future yeah yeah, yeah so uh, the key thing about this song musically is that it's the first song they do uh, with Jeff Percaro and he's like 18 years old. He is no. just a kid. Um, yeah. He it's the only song he plays drums on, but he plays all the drums on the following record. Katie lied, mm-hmm. but it's really like a star making turn for him. And the degree to which that he just like locks this song down and everything else just kind of moves around him. Yeah, it, it's 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 really astonishing. Like it's the they really lucked into finding like this the, the absolute perfect drummer in the world for that specific song. But like he's a teenager, you know, like he <laughs> he's <laughs> like... just a kid. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and like that's not the you know, you know, it's funny because I mentioned before, like they're working with Connor Kennedy, who uh, Donald Fagan's been working with since he's probably in his early to mid 20s. But, you know, age ain't nothing but a number when uh, Donald Fagan's looking for talent. Mm hmm. Not everybody's a TV baby as far as he's concerned, you know, <laughs> but Picaro, like, was he like a child prodigy or something? Like, how did he get in such an, uh, an incredible opportunities at such a young age? Like, I don't know a lot. He's almost about like him. Diego Maradona of drumming. You know, it's like, I mean, we have to but, sign him immediately. Like, the, like I say, it's his big break. I think, I think it's his big break musically. Like he had before this, I know he was on the Sonny and Cher's TV show. Mm-hmm. So like as just like a, as like a real kid. So yeah, I, I actually, uh, I really do want to know more about this astonishing man's life. And obviously we're very familiar with his death, but uh, the, the early years have to be pretty interesting. And how do you just become that sophisticated a drummer by the time you're 18? Mm-hmm. Like to be a good drummer, 18 isn't crazy, but to be like what he could do, is just a, a level of intuition and natural gift for the drums. That's, you know, it, it's prodigy level. This song also kind of gives a lot of space for, uh, for uh, Jeff Baxter and Danny Diaz to just rip in some really great solos. There's some great horn parts in it. Uh, it yeah. It has like a real kind of like a, 
if it's one of the ones that feel kind of Hollywood to me. If there's, mm-hmm. there's a, I think, I think it's one of the, you know, the going back to the original premise of Steely Dan is cinema. Mm-hmm. I think Night by Night is definitely one of the more cinematic songs they have. This song also has that sort of, uh, you know, the stuff that I've joked about a lot with Steely Dan, sort of that they were gangsta in the mid seventies. Like this is a great driving around at night with the top down song. Yeah, I mean, oh, and also the character just being pretty gangster to begin with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they really have. Uh, I mean, we've obviously talked about them being fascinated by the loser, but I think you know we're kind of getting to some of the ones that are just like it's just criminals, just creeps and goons. Hmm. I mean, you know this this segues into the. Are we going to do the Boston Rag on this show? Because this segues into it. Not, not this time. Okay. Uh, we're doing what one per, but um. Stay yeah, tuned for Danfield. Stay tuned for Danfield five on that one. Yeah, five, six, seven. You know. <laughs> well, let's move ahead to a song from Katie Live that you know. Since we recorded the last Danfield, I have just fallen completely in love with. It is now yeah. like top echelon songs for me. Uh, Your gold teeth too. Uh, one of the most jazz songs they have. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I uh, your enthusiasm for the song was so infectious that it even got me. Like I was when I heard that you were now madly in love with the song, I, I, I put it back on and it was like, ah, yes, what a great, what a great song this is. Who are these strangers who pass through the door? Who cover your action and go your one? You best not refuse It's your game, the rules are your own Win or lose Throw out your gold teeth and see how they roll The answer they reveal Life is unreal So much to love about it just on a purely musical level like uh what Percaro is doing on the drums is amazing uh i i know fagan was kind of inst- uh, apparently was instructing him to uh brush up on some very particular uh mingus recordings and you can mm-hmm. definitely hear that in there there's uh there's a real ease to the drumming on that song it's just it's it's a very uh because it, it's it's complicated, but it's more just kind of like it's all in the feel. Yeah, the, the thing that I really truly love the most in the song is the piano, mm-hmm. and it's I, I I think it's Fagan playing it, mm-hmm. probably, but he certainly composed it. Um, but yeah, especially when you get to that kind of uh, that break, that da 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 like that mm-hmm, part of it mm-hmm. like i just i mean just on a pure like oh those chords just take me it's just like bliss i just love that part so much um another thing that's really special about your gold teeth is that it really is one of the most like positive and guileless songs they have yes absolutely where it really is like you know 
about loving jazz and just like witnessing a band and being blown away by them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so it really is like I was saying before, like uh, with Asia, you know, that song that's that's very much about jazz, as, as we've determined. Uh, this one is is very literally about it, too, of just being appreciative and, and just loving something. And it's there's, there's no cynicism in this song. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, a couple of things I really want to say about the song is I love ha- that sort of electronic synthy sort of startup to the song. Oh with, yeah, with all and, those. And, uh, and again, that it kind of like really starts on this whole other groove before switching uh, entirely. But it switches into this um, Vince Guaraldi, Charlie Brown kind of sound. That's what I got out of it. The uh, yes, the, the piano part like it sounds like something from a charlie brown christmas a little bit <laughs> yeah I mean, or, or even just like it's a little brubecky too yeah it but yeah it's that real like kind of like mid-20th century feel mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but and you know the other thing that i was thinking about about your gold teeth too which bears almost no resemblance to the original your gold teeth which is off countdown to ecstasy it shares a close approximation of one of the lines from the from song the idea yeah, of, uh, it was just enough where they were like well you know we may as well make the sequel mm-hmm. and this is i would say one of the greatest sequels of all time up there <laughs> with the godfather part two and the empire strikes back <laughs> but where, where, look at some of the ones where the the, the sequel's better than the original yeah, yeah your gold yeah. teeth top five <laughs> your gold teeth this is two your gold two teeth uh it, like too fast too furious <laughs> two gold two teeth <laughs> but this is, uh, yeah, I, I'm glad you said it. It's one of their most positive and hopeful songs, um, but it's also from an album where they were actually metamorphosizing into a different kind of band, which makes me think that that's what the Katie did on the cover of Katie Lied is. is like, it's the band's metamorphosis, the way that, you know, pupa become insects, that this was a band that was venturing into new and uncharted territory of like bringing in specific ringers, most of the time from the world of jazz, to nail specific tasks. And what leads me to believe that that's what they're saying here is in the second verse, when Fagan sings, who are these strangers who pass through your door, who cover mm. your action and go you one more that the, these players were being brought in um, w- under sort of expectations, but then the players give them things that they weren't expecting. You know, it's funny you say that, but like well, one of the best things about this song is from a familiar face, Denny Diaz. The Denny Diaz lead on this song is 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 just truly outstanding. I think I think it's maybe his best part on any of the records. Mm-hmm. But there's something really like shimmering and gorgeous about his guitar part on this song. And you know, I think Denny Diaz usually kind of gets short shrift compared to Jeff Baxter. Mm-hmm. But I think this, what he pulls off in this song is something that Jeff Baxter I, I don't think uh, could have really done as well. He's more. Uh, he, he thrives in a different uh, sort of swing. Yeah, but this is Diaz transitioning out of being a member of the band and into a guy who comes in. Yeah. Um, what was the last song that Diaz played on for Steely Dan? I know. I'm pretty sure he's on Gaucho somewhere. Yeah. I, I know. I know he's on Asia, but I think he's on Asia. I think he, he he's pretty consistent through the catalog. Mm-hmm. So I think the gold teeth in this song is like rolling the dice, like see how they roll is like, um, you know, let's see what happens. Yeah. And, and it's also worth saying here that, um, 
we mentioned uh, Chinese music earlier, which was Armstrong's put down of bebop. But the one of the most important bebop artists was Miles Davis, who embraced jazz fusion. And yeah, I, well, I, I, mean, I would say arguably kind of invented jazz fusion. But I feel that there's connections. He's certainly one of the main figures of it. There's connections between this song and um, In a Silent Way, which is my oh, favorite yeah. of Miles Davis's records. And that, you know, when he made that uh, change in his sound in the early 70s, it was like the jazz equivalent of, uh, I guess, Bob Dylan going electric. You know, it was like he started incorporating into jazz electric guitar and electric keyboards. And that's what yeah. we have here. And then the mutating into the kind of a hard funk. Mm hmm. So let's move along. We're moving along to uh, the Royal Scam. The song that we've uh, selected from the Royal Scam for this one is Everything You Did. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that you push for everything you did because I, I my appreciation of that song has gone up a lot in the recent yeah. past as a result. And my God, this might be the filthiest <laughs> song they have. This is just like the lyric of this song is basically like a complicated cuckold fantasy. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And the, it, there's just like jizz jokes and things like that. This song is like this song is just the, this is like out of all their songs, the one that most lends itself to a porn uh, film. Yeah. I am probably like my 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 final words on my deathbed could be you were a roller skater. <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite, I think maybe one of the funniest things Fagan ever did on the mic is the line uh, his his reading of like I jump out the easy chair. It was, it was not, not my, my own. own. It's just, like it's just like it's this uncharacteristic my own. Yeah. But yeah, so I mean, to, to paint a brief picture for the listener, everything you did is like this. 
it's like a fly on the wall of uh, watching this huge fight between this couple over, uh, I guess, infidelity, where the guy basically wants to know what she did. Right. Tell but it's me all, everything. It, it all sounds like he, it, it, like, there's a kind of a, a cuck fantasy yeah. or like a, or like a, it's, it's it's like that. Like he wants to know everything she did in this way so he can get off on it. It's yeah. not like he's like the anger is not like the anger of like you have cheated on me. Our relationship is over. It is much more lurid. And even when he's saying like, I want to get a gun that this mostly just sounds like he's playing it up, you know? Yeah. And, and I love also, I know where baby's at. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's so oh, God, sleazy. Even the implication that like he's like the, the other guy is like still hanging around their yeah. place somewhere, like hiding under a bed or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a good song. And it starts so great like with that really hard uh, guitar. Oh, that's a great riff at the start. Oh, yeah. So good. And and for one of the greatest moments in in their catalog is the Larry Carlton guitar solo in the song. It's just with the uh, the way that the time signature bends a little bit along with his guitar, like he sort of extends the, the meter with his guitar playing that yeah. sort of and, elastic and... sort of rubber bandy sort of sound. The, 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 the thing though, the, that real, that I love about the song is that it has, you know, what is not really a huge feud in real life between the Eagles and Steely Dan, but they had this like running joke between the two bands that was the first shot was fired. Right. By and Steely they're, they're Dan. both like, they, they have the same manager. Uh, yeah. Irving, Irving Azoff. Irving Azoff is their manager. So it's not a real fight. But and, there and that's is the a... thing that they have in common with Harry Styles as well. Oh, oh, for real? Yeah, yeah. Amazing. So the, the, it has one of the great put downs in their catalog. Where during the fight, he says, turn up the eagles. The neighbors are listening. <laughs> yeah, which is apparently like a, a, a joke uh, at the expense of like Walter's girlfriend or something. Well, they asked him. Um, Glenn Fry and and the quote from Fry is apparently Walter Becker's girlfriend loved the Eagles and she played them all the time. I think it drove him nuts. So the story goes that they were having a fight one day and that was the genesis of the line. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a uh, uh, thing about everything you did and just like I mean, or just uh, let me get that. A thing that's really cool about the the, the Eagles and Steely Dan is that it like, while there are certain ways that they are absolute opposite bands, like. They are kind of like two sides of the same coin. They're yeah. both like these guys who are really perfectionists, kind of different directions. Yeah. It makes sense for them to be a yin and yang. Like they like it makes sense for them to be like this weird, like late 70s, mid to late 70s Beatles and Stones. Yeah, definitely. And also, uh, it, it occurs to me now that Dirty Work is is a song the Eagles could have done, you know? Like it actually sounds yeah. like an Eagles song. Right. Oh man, I kind of like. I mean, uh, Timothy B. Schmidt uh, sang on a bunch of uh, Steely Dan records, like backing vocals and stuff like that, mm -hmm. uh, prior to joining the Eagles. But I think the if, if the Eagles had recorded uh, Dirty Work with Timothy B. Schmidt on lead vocals, the song would have really come off better. Yeah, for sure. And they were both uh, living the same uh, kind of circles in the music world in California. Like the Eagles were there, and the Steely Dan came over there to work. But they were all it was all life in the fast lane for both of these yeah. bands. Right. But the, the, I think the difference is the, the Eagles are the jocks and the Steely Dan are the nerds. Yeah, for sure. 
I'll, I'll read you another interesting quote from Glenn Fry that uh, gives us some insight on uh, on the relationship. Because I it was I think it was I think the Eagles got a lot of information out of Steely. Like, let me rephrase. The the Eagles really respected Steely Dan. I don't know whether it cut both ways. Um, I don't. I I think that Steely Dan just probably didn't take the Eagles very seriously, and let, uh, except as maybe you know fellow sort of seventies rock phenomenons. But I think they probably respected them more musically than they did some of their other peers, for sure. But I find this very that, interesting. That much seems clear to me. I find this very interesting. So Glenn Fry said in an interview, uh, Glenn Fry said, one of the things that impressed us about Steely Dan was that they would say anything in their songs and it didn't have to necessarily make sense. They called it joke sculpture, which I think is really good. <laughs> okay. When we thought of doing the song Hotel California, we started thinking that it would be very cinematic to do it like sort of the Twilight Zone. So you have one line that says there's a guy on the highway. The next line says there's a hotel in the distance. Then there's a woman there and he walks in. It's all just like one shots just strung together and you sort of draw your own conclusions from it. So, bam, there's my Steely Dan as cinema uh, argument backed up by Glenn Fry. I mean, the Eagles as cinema. I've yeah. never really thought about that. Yeah, but like the, the lyrics that of uh, that song are kind of like a like a screenplay direction. But but the 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 impetus to come at music that way is something that they credit to Steely Dan. Yeah, that makes sense. And then so Fry said that um, he and Henley were trying to expand their lyrical horizons and just take on something in the realm of the bizarre as Steely Dan had done. Yeah. I can't, the, imagine, I can't imagine Steely Dan being inspired to do something more like the Eagles. But it no. definitely makes sense that, that they were like, oh, man, these guys have great ideas. Yeah, but it led to them saying, you know, let's compose a shot list. But this is also what I have been saying about Steely Dan is that a lot of their songs play out like little mini narratives and little like songs like Haitian Divorce, which we mentioned on Dan Pilled One. It's a series of sequences and Glamour Profession, too. And, and we should also point out that the Eagles got revenge on Steely Dan. Uh, they included that line in Hotel California where they said they stab it with their steely knives, but they just can't yeah. kill the beast. Right. And like, I feel like, like I don't even see that as a diss. That sounds cool. <laughs> I know, but they wanted to sort of yeah. get one back on, on Steely yeah. Dan. For or even just, I feel like that, that seems more like a wink. Than, yeah. than a diss you know no but i mean they're acknowledging each other it was sort of <laughs> the steely dan line seems like a diss of the eagles i know but this is what this is what we're saying is that the eagles yeah. really respected steely dan but they didn't respect them back per se and uh yeah. you know anyway i thought it was very funny that uh that uh turn up the eagles the neighbors are listening comes from <laughs> a domestic squabble with walter becker yeah well l- l- let's move along to my favorite like this is one that uh you're like yeah. oh let's do this one i think we talked about a bit about this in the first time or the second time we've talked around it but we've never really yeah. discussed it but yeah but my, my favorite is time out of mind from gaucho
Time Out of Mind is a song. It's kind of like I was kind of alluding to like that's a that's a daylight song to me. Mm-hmm. That is a blue sky song to me. That is I listen to Time Out of Mind all the time. It's a song. I think I may have said it the first time around is one that uh, can elevate my mood under any circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a fascinating song. It is it's another drug song. Uh I I'm always amazed by the structure of it. I like the thing, especially that that middle section when it kind of goes into uh, that instrumental part that kind of goes through like three phases before coming back in on the chorus with Michael McDonald jumping in on re- like like reinforcements. Yep. Once again, used as a special effect. Yeah, that's that's basically what he is in these songs. Uh, and it's real and like his 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 presence on time out of mind is like fairly uh subtle relative to the way they use him on peg for example where he really carries the chorus mm-hmm. um i mean the, and the other thing that's really like notable like really from like the first second of the song is uh rick Murata on drums and it's just like such a perfect precise drum performance and then also from the start you have uh from dire straits uh why am I blanking on his Mark name? Knopfler. My brain just yes from from Dire Straits. Mark Knopfler playing the solo at the start of the song and at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I know he's... some people feel that like they, that he's underused in the song, but I feel like he's used just perfectly. Yeah, he got the gig uh, after Walter and Donald uh, really liked Sultans of Swing. They were like, "Okay, we got to get as him." As do we all? Yeah, we got to get that guy. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I really had a lot of context for him until fairly recently, actually, of just like what in context be like, oh, my God, where did this guy come from? You know, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, he's he's a remarkable player. Um, yeah. So what is your feeling on Time Out of Mind? Well, I think it's a it's a perfect song. It was their final single. It's perfection and grace. Yeah. It's a perfect song, and it's a, an amazing uh, example of their uh, subversive senses of humor. That uh, this song is full on about heroin, but nobody uh, that did not get in the way of its airplay. It was a minor hit in 1981, um, but every single line <laughs> of the song is about heroin. Yes, um, it's a. Uh... Like where do you begin? It's it's a it's like a drug guru. Yeah, uh, yeah, the, yeah. It's the it's about a it's it's about yeah, a guy who has to sort of put up with uh he, he sort of has to put up with a hippy dippy guy who's gonna like get him uh his fix is yeah. is what I get the sense of. It's like a guy in a drug den who uh, is being sort of walked through the process. Yeah, it's it's kind of also this kind of fascinating to think of like like this song getting on the radio and because it's using such like specific drug jargon it comes across as kind of like pretty nonsense as opposed to literally describing uh smoking heroin Mm -hmm. i mean at one point it's like uh put a dollar in the kitty which is paying the guy (laughs) for the drugs chasing the dragon which is the actual tonight (laughs) when i chase the dragon yeah, and then the, the water will change to cherry wine. Also, I, I, I love songs that reference cherry wine. So, like, cherry wine is a thing that's referenced in songs far more than you ever find it in life. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> do you know what that means? Um, well, I, I do, because it, 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 it'll just turn red. 
Yeah, when you're smoking, not that I've ever smoked heroin, but in order to smoke black tar heroin, you have to dilute it with water and then it creates this paste that can be spread on the aluminum foil. Um, and then when you light the uh, aluminum foil to smoke the heroin, it wriggles a little bit, right? And that's uh, that's another sort of uh, meaning of chasing the dragon. I mean, chasing the dragon is going after your next fix, but it also ref- it's a colloquialism for the actual smoking of the drug. Yeah. And the silver will turn to gold is the aluminum foil burning from the uh, from the heroin and changing the color of the foil. Yeah. Oh, I, I thank Walter for uh, letting me in on this because I, I surely have not smoked heroin myself. <laughs> um, but but the but, song. Yeah, but, but you know, the song. Know, but but we know like it. so much detail about it. Well, through research. But uh, but it's so funny that uh, that this did not get picked up on even in the music industry. Like it's uh, very obvious. You would think that some people in 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 the higher echelons of the music biz would understand. I mean, what I feel the like Chase the Dragon is not that obscure. Yeah, as a phrase. Mm-hmm. I mean, the rest of it, like the the with the the cherry wine and the silver which on the gold like that's the more like okay real heads know mm-hmm. when i was younger and and trying to understand once i figured out that this song was about heroin i thought that you only shot heroin uh as a teenager i mean that so, was definitely the 90s way of doing it for sure but so i thought the water changing to cherry wine was the uh the syringe with blood in it after shooting heroin that also checks out but I found out that it's no, it's about burning the uh, heroin on the aluminum foil. It's like how naive. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, God. But, you, but at the same time, the song is uh, you know it, it's an oral equivalent of what they say the effects of heroin are. Right, because it is that perfect bliss. Like they really, it, it's really probably the most amazing advertisement for heroin in the world. <laughs> Right. Because it's just like it's really selling you most optimistically, uh, no downside, pure joy. Uh, here's how you buy it. Here's how you smoke it. Everybody, let's get some heroin. But, you know, th- there's a there's a rich tradition in rock music about uh, how terrible heroin is and songs in, in R&B and and pop, including about... the Steely Dan catalog. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but this song is like a very sunny and happy song about, uh, you know, the, the joy of uh, escaping your troubles. Right. And this is really in the depths of his addiction too. Mm-hmm. So I feel like you usually don't get like a, a song, like, like an ode to how great your addiction is. <laughs> Although it, it makes sense if you, if it, you know, if there's one thing I know about heroin is that it feels great. <laughs> I know, but you know, but there was no. no uh, maybe if they ever did uh, legalize heroin, this could be a jingle in a commercial. It's perfection and grace. It's a smile on my face, and the mystical sphere is the ball of heroin, like the black tar heroin, direct from Lassa, where people are rolling in the snow, far from the world <laughs> we know. It's like every single line in the song is about <sighs> shooting heroin. This this really or might be the her. most. This is like really one of the most perfect songs I, I've ever known. It is just there, every single thing about this song makes me so happy, <laughs> and it's just I'm in awe of it. I'm in awe like as I said before, like that that uh, musical interlude. Um, like there's on you can find on YouTube someone just like put that uh, minute or so, minute and a half of the song as a loop. 
Mm -hmm. So you can just really just stay in that perfect part of the song. It just feels so great. Um, I love that lead guitar part when uh, when they play it. Not not the not the Knopfler part, the part that's in the middle of the song. Yes. Um, When when that song is performed live, uh, Donald Fagan always plays that part on the uh, not harmonica, the uh, melodica. Mm Um, and this is probably this is like why I'm disappointed that Time Out of Mind is not on the live record because the live version of Time Out of Mind is significantly different and just has a different feel to it. But it's it's really this one of the key songs of their live set. It's just oh, it's so great and like hearing Carlock's uh, version of the drum part, he makes it a little bit more disco, um, but it's also like a little bit slower. It has kind of a it yeah it's it's not as tight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But another thing that, I mean, this song, what I love about this song as well is that um, I don't know how many people get uh, drawn to trying heroin based on the song. Like, I've never been curious about doing heroin, not even the fact that I love this song so much and it sounds so blissful and enjoyable to do heroin according to this song. It's never inspired me to do so. I think the meaning like of the I've song been, must go over people's heads. I, I feel like I've just been terrified of heroin. Yeah. Because, I mean, I grew up, like, I was a teenager in the 90s. So it's yeah. just like, ooh, bad news, bad news. All all, all the all the rock stars you, you like, they're, they either die or their lives are miserable because of heroin. Yeah. Um, I just mean that the song, I don't think the song is a corrupting force or influence on anything. No, no. I mean, I think it's partly because it is so cryptic. It's it's a real, if you know, you know. But like on the on the musical level, it is just like the sunny, gorgeous song. Um, it doesn't really have, I mean, there is a cynicism in how it's it's written and, and written, especially, you know, the idea of like this kind of like more guru figure. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you know, the, the feeling of the song doesn't have a darkness that's in a lot of their songs. Yeah. No, it's great. And I, I, um, Gaucho is just such a great record. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you and I both have our favorite Steely Dan songs are on that album. Yeah, I, I think I, I think Asia is my favorite overall, but Gaucho I love so deeply. Well, um, one thing that's changed in my life uh, since getting to know you and getting, you know, the Dan pilling and getting high on my own supply too. Like I've been Dan pilling myself again. Uh, I really love the Royal scam even more now that we've been doing these shows. Yeah. Like I've always liked it, but now I think it might be uh, right up there with Gaucho for my favorite record. Yeah. Well, let's move along. We're going to wrap on one of the, the lost songs, the second arrangement. I love this song. It's Second arrangement was 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 uh, made for Gaucho. It was not completed. Like sort of legendarily, like uh, someone who was working on the record, some one of the engineers or something, like erased a large portion of it of the tracks. But the song survives. Like there's various recordings of it. Um, if you go on YouTube, like someone fairly recently made something from uh, from a from an account called the Dan vault made a something called second arrangement ultimate mix, which I think is the, the, the best version of it. It mm. just sounds like a finished recording in a way that some of the others don't. And I don't know what kind of wizardry went as they, they were kind of like triangulating a few different versions of it. But uh, if you want to hear the second arrangement, you've never heard it. I recommend looking up the ultimate mix. Thank you. 
one that has a different lead vocal where a guy is trying to sound like Fagin? Because there, I've heard. No, no, no. It, it is Fagin. It's okay. it, it's kind of it, it's 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 Frankensteining a few different things, and it's just like whatever they did, like everything just sounds crisp. Um, the, the drums sound great in it. Um, it's funny because like I, I I have the version that I have on my phone doesn't have drums, yeah, and the song just really suffers without the drums uh it, it really they really were going for this to be like the disco song on the record it's a it's an amazing song though i've heard like two different uh reconstructions of it the one that i was mentioning to you it sounded really good and then this guy came on and he was trying to do donald fagan and it was like well the the, the surviving fagan vocal isn't that bad that you can't use it at all <laughs> like uh but uh to, it's it's it would have changed Gaucho if they had included it on the record because yeah I I, I kind of prefer that it's not there to be honest with you there are several very interesting uh, demos and and uh, alternate takes of Gaucho like somebody's put together like the the, the lost Gaucho album which has right. Coolie Baba on it and uh, a different version of uh, Third World Man called Were You Blind That Day. And something called the bear and the bear is, is not bad. I mean, there's, there's certain songs that they, they have that they're discarded where I feel like uh, hopefully they'll officially release some of these things. Just, just, for, just to have them out there and let people don't have to like dig around. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I feel like the second arrangement, they should just record a whole new version. Um, one thing I noticed, I mentioned that, uh, like Connor Kennedy is a good Instagram follow, but pretty recently he put up just fucking with people maybe, or maybe not uh sheet music for here at the Western world in the second arrangement. And he put like black lines over the, the staff of the, all the, the, you know, the chords and stuff like redacted. Yeah. As a joke. Yeah. But yeah, but I, I, it, it, they have played both of those songs. They've played the second arrangement. Like when they play the, um, the, the residencies, sometimes they do like a kind of a real, like rarities kind of show. And so at these kind of things, I I haven't, I haven't been to one of those Mm -hmm. and they haven't done them in a while, Mm -hmm. but they've played the second arrangement. They've played the bear. They've played a few of these songs that were just kind of total orphan songs. Yeah. Well, the first two Steely Dan songs weren't on any of their albums. One was called Dallas and one was called Sail the Waterway. And I yeah. got so excited when I saw that they were on YouTube and they're both bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, that, that's Juvenalia. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a, there's um, yeah, there's another one that's from around the era called uh, This All Too Mobile Home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've played that one. Uh, yeah, that, I think... The other one, the other version of the show that I've never seen is like the Dawn of the Dan show, which they haven't done in a while. Oh, that's, like, that's where they would play those. And it, that's where they would play like more songs than usual from the first album. Yeah, because very early on when when Becker and Fagan were doing, uh, I guess when they were uh, songwriters or whatever, they they put out some demos of some music. And there's a movie that um, they're endlessly bootleg. Well, there's this movie called You Gotta Walk It Like You Talk It or You'll Lose That Beat which was like a New York sort of art scene uh, movie that has Richard Pryor in it. And apparently there's no surviving print of that film, but they are the credited soundtrack guys on that film. (laughs) But it has been lost to history. So the second 
arrangement as a saying, we, we do, we'd be doing these songs that are sort of twins. Mm-hmm. So this one is kind of a twin to everything you did. It's another infidelity song. Yeah. But I, I think uh, sort of less interestingly so. Um, it, it's really sung from the perspective of someone who's cheated. He's like going, he's, you know, blew the relationship, going back to his mistress. Um, I mean, the second arrangement, I think, is a pretty good song, but uh, I don't mind it being something that didn't make the cut something i feel like it gains more from being the lost song than it would have been finished to me listening to that song which i only heard for the first time in my life this year and i consider myself so well versed on steely dan and i had heard all the other gaucho demos years ago but somehow i just never heard the second arrangement until 2021 but um it's the connective tissue between Gaucho and the Nightfly. To me, it's like yes, the, the I, I fully agree with the that. midpoint. It's, it's, it doesn't quite belong on either record, but they could. They are connected by the sound of that song. I I think it's a great song. All I ask is for a proper um, reconstruction of it. Yeah, but yeah, it's not like I w- want them to put it back on Gaucho because it would have thrown off the balance of Gaucho if it was there. I, yeah, I think Gaucho is is perfect as it is. Uh, but you know, uh, you know, we we mentioned uh, the Nightfly, and you know, we were talking about the live stuff. We didn't really talk about the Nightfly live record. I think we could just wrap up on uh, acknowledging that that one exists as well. Yeah, it's nice, and uh, it's as long as it's maybe a minute longer than the actual Nightfly album because of the intro and outro clapping <laughs> between tracks. Like Northeast Corridor, it was recorded at various uh, venues. And um, mostly at the Beacon Theater, is it? And um, yeah. I got to say, the God Keith Carlock on this record. He's I so feel like good. he really shines on this yeah. one, like it, especially on uh, Green Flower Street, yeah. IGY, New Frontier. Yeah. He, Walk Between Raindrops. Like it's just they're, they're such good showcases for him. Yeah. And, and it has uh, another uh, like deep cut. Of, of Fagan's is on Nightfly, a song that I really like and think is funny called uh, The Goodbye Look. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, that, 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 that's a nice paranoid one. Well, that's sort of like um, that Don Henley song, All She Wants to Do is Dance. Like he seems to be in uh, some third world country where he's a marked man and he's got to get out and he's the gringo or something. Um, yeah. Like, and it and it has the uh, hilarious uh, line that I don't quite understand, but I think is so great. In between verses, he says, "Will you pour me a Cuban greet?" No, he says, "Will you pour me a Cuban breeze, Gretchen?" <laughs> Gretchen. <laughs> <laughs> Wake up, darling. You're knocking. The colonel standing in the sun with a stupid face, the glasses, and the gown. Yeah, it's about a guy who's got to get out of town. Like uh, the 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 country is falling. Uh, everybody's got to get out. He's in trouble, or he's in trouble with the local crime lord. 
they're they're planning a small reception just for me behind the deep the big casino by the sea like it sounds like he's gonna get whacked <laughs> the, the goodbye the look would be a great movie yeah it's, it's all right there <laughs> but there seems to be some revolution going on like he says there's been talk and and lately a little action after dark you know like <laughs> well okay but so this was so the whole conceit of this record is that it's in the 50s right when yeah. he's a kid yeah so this could be um, Cuba. Yeah, it sounds like Cuba to me. Yeah, but it's such a funny song, and uh, it has a, a, a hilarious uh, vibraphone, uh, uh, you know, accompaniment. That's a very they do a very nice version of it in the live format. But uh, for me, the highlight of the record is is Greenflower Street because of Carlock. He's so good on that track. Completely my, on my, point. The, the, the big highlight for me is actually New Frontier. I think yeah. the version of New Frontier on this is just outstanding. Again, like largely thanks to Carlock. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel like, you know, it's, he, he drums on both of these things. It's the same band playing both of these uh, records. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feel like the the material on the Nightfly flatters different things. Mm-hmm. Well, the Nightfly is one of the most perfect uh, studio recordings in existence. So it's very interesting to hear a live and more um, uh, open uh, version of these songs. Like it's not yeah, kind of a little more lived in. Yeah. And, 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 and the ambiance of performing it live and in, you know, because the night fly as perfect and pristine as it is, was probably put together in uh, components. Yeah. It's, it's a digital recording. It's very sterile. Um, yeah, I, I got to see one of the the Nightfly shows. Not not one of the ones that they recorded for this. Uh, I saw it in uh, 2018 as opposed to 2019. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's it's a real thrill to see that one. Um, yeah, especially like, I think IGY. This it has a great feel to it. Um, and and again, like the, the, there's a he he you know he writes a bit of like kind of ironic naivete into this record because you know, it's from the perspective of him as a young man. And it has added. So, so it's like looking. So, you know, it's almost like his wonder years, you know. But it has added poignancy because when he wrote The Nightfly in 1982, he was, you know, a guy in, in, around 40 or, you know, looking back, not even. I think like maybe, mid-30s yeah, mid 30s somewhere. Yeah. Let me say that again then. So it has added poignancy because The Nightfly in 1982 is, you know, a guy in his mid 30s uh, looking back on his uh, naive childhood in the, in the suburbs. And now we have the added poignancy of a 73-year-old man singing songs that he wrote in his 30s about his childhood. Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, I I think we can kind of wrap there. Jesse, always a pleasure. Yeah, love talking Uh, to you. Jesse, tell people where they can usually find you. Well, um, my podcast, Junk Filter, is uh, going to be turning one year old on Friday. And... uh, I'll have oh my God. Some, I have some exciting uh, shows coming up later this month. I can be found on Twitter at uh, Jesse Hawken. And the Junk Filter Twitter account is Junk Filter Pod. And I obviously would like to have you to come back on the show uh, sometime before the end of the year. I would love possible. to. Because, you know, because I've only been on the show to talk about Steely Dan. So it'd be nice to do like a movie one. Yeah. A movie As one. It's a movie podcast. Well, no, it's movies <laughs> and music. But uh, yeah, I, I just recorded a very good show uh, that I'm putting out this week with uh, Osida Wanevu from the New Republic on Scott Joplin. 
Oh wow! Wait, so so what are some other uh, recent episodes that you you'd recommend the people that you're you're proud of? Uh, I, a really really funny one that I just did last week with the author Jacob Bacharach, where we talked about the David Lynch version of Dune and the Denis Villeneuve version of Dune. It's it's a it's a mega sized episode. But that's because we're dealing with fairly epic material. It's a so much very Dune. very funny. So episode. much sand. It was so yeah. The Bene Gesserit uh, alone takes like five minutes to explain but it's a very very funny show uh we also take uh, sicario and blade runner 2049 to the woodshed on this show <laughs> but uh it's like it's a it's a popular culture show where we talk about movies and music and try to expose uh people to things or perspectives that they may not have considered another music episode that we just did was uh a show on the new spanish model project the uh the oh, spanish the language yeah. uh this year's model re- redo uh, that's a lot of fun. I recommend that record actually, if you like him. Yeah. So, so I, I assume you have, you have one coming up on the Eternals. Yes, yes. I haven't chosen my <laughs> my guest yet, but I am going to take one for the yeah. team. I've made so yeah. many. Well, well, you, you've been on social media riffing on the Eternals for months now. <laughs> yeah. So it's not fair for me to just complain about this movie and not actually watch it and bear witness and give my response. So I'm definitely going to watch it. Uh, in the next week or two, uh, so, you can some mixed that. reviews. Mixed reviews on that one. <laughs> yeah, they. It, it's so funny that uh, that uh, the Marvel finally got their first rotten rating and bad reviews for a movie directed by this year's best picture and best director winner. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you you live by the Druig, you die by the Druig. <laughs> Love is the Druig, as Roxy <laughs> Music once said. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, thanks, Jesse. We'll, we'll do another uh, damn pill. We'll do damn pill five before too long. Well, yeah. If listeners may have noticed it, uh, we still have other Steely Dan songs we haven't talked about yet. So, oh yeah, and also just like angles on it. Like we could keep doing this forever, man. <laughs> uh, like I think it'd be fun to talk to some uh, Steely Dan people, Steely Dan adjacent people. Yeah, you know, but. You know, it's fun. It's always like I, I'm always uh, thrilled to talk about Steely Dan. Well, there's so much to talk about. That's what's so funny. I felt so much pressure when I invited you to do the first one to get it all in in 90 minutes. <laughs> and look at us now. Ah, <laughs> uh, man, we're, we're, we're the, we're, you know, you, you got to keep it going. You got to get the franchise going like the MCU. Yeah, exactly. The, the all SDCU. Right. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Jesse. You're welcome. See you soon.